You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 109. Today, we will be previewing the events that will be happening in Montreal next week at the World Social Forum. But first, the news. The world may have moved on from 24-7 Brexit obsession, but one of the many casualties of the Brexit vote was any pretense of unity within the UK's Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn, the longtime leftist backbencher, elected Labour leader recently with a campaign that many compared to that of Bernie Sanders, faced a no-confidence vote and challenges from within his own party after the Brexit vote. But turns out that challenge had been planned for a long time, and the Brexit vote was just a pretense from the right wing of the party to try to oust the left. Unions and leftists are rallying around Corbyn, Labour has seen a surge in membership, and friend of the show and guest on episode 101, Ronan Burtonshaw, has been there covering the action. I gave Ronan a call to hear the latest. So start from the top, let's do an abbreviated version of what has been going on in Labour since the Brexit vote. The Brexit vote really uh, was a trigger for uh, the right wing of the Parliamentary Labour Party in Britain to launch a coup against Jeremy Corbyn. This is something they'd wanted to do for months. They'd been planning to do it around the by-election if you didn't get a result in the local elections and many other moments, but they didn't manage to find an opportunity and they used the Brexit vote, which really Corbyn had very little uh, to do with causing uh, as a trigger to, to launch their coup. Uh, and once they did, uh, there was then a battle to get Corbyn onto the ballot for a leadership election, which we are now in the middle of. Uh, and at, uh, the big moment, really, in that battle was the meeting of the NEC, the executive of the party, where Corbyn narrowly won the votes um, to secure his, his position on the on the ballot. Uh, we now know who his challenger is, his own Smith, who is somebody who's seen as being from the soft left of the party, but really um, is rallying forces uh, from the Labour establishment former Blairites and so on to support him. Uh, and the battle lines are between um, the Parliamentary Labour Party, the vast majority of whom support uh, Owen Smith, the party establishment um, in, the, in the headquarters and staff and so on, are also on Smith's side, versus the, the membership, um, which has increased enormously under Corbyn to make Labour um, the first mass party in, in the Western world in this century, around 600,000 members, um, many of whom had to fight very hard to to, uh, to get a right to vote because the NEC tried to exclude them. Um, but they, uh, despite many of them being excluded, lots uh, have managed to find another way of joining through being supporters to vote. Um, and then also the trade unions who are backing Jeremy Corbyn as well. Um, so they were key votes in winning his position at the NEC uh, to get on the ballot. So talk a little bit about how this is a change for the trade unions to be backing this progressive force within the Labour Party. The Labour Party has had decades of battles between its different factions. The, the left, the centre and the right um, have been vying for control over it for a long time. And so particularly if we think of the 1980s and the battle between Tony Benn and Neil Kinnock, usually the lines were drawn as the membership on the side of the left of the party, but the trade unions ending up with the centre or with the right uh, against the left-wing candidates. Um, that has very much changed now. In the latest uh, battle that we're in, uh, the trade unions are very clearly on Corbyn's side, uh, the vast majority of them at least. Um, and I think the reason for this is that austerity has changed the uh, politics uh, inside the Labour Party and also the politics in Britain. Um, the attacks on the working class have been so significant uh, since 2008 um, that it has 
created a groundswell beneath um, the, the trade unions at the rank and file level, which is being expressed through the membership of the Labour Party as well, of, um, of opposition to austerity and a desire for some kind of different politics. Um, there's also been key battles inside the union, so the election of people like Len McCluskey is the head of of Unite, who's clearly the most left-wing leader um, that they've had in a very long time, uh, and uh, attacks by the current Tory government. So the proposal to introduce a trade union bill, which would change how strikes happen in Britain, it would massively increase the number of uh, votes you have to get to be able to, to go on strike um, by changing the percentages and so on and the rules. Um, all of those things have crystallised into a much more left-wing orientation for the for the trade unions inside uh, the Labour Party. Yeah. You have a piece up at Jacobin that talks about um, ways to democratise the Labour Party. Um, are the unions supporting these, these moves to democratise the party? There have been some very important moves towards that from the unions. I think the biggest one is uh, with Unite, uh, where they have... Uh, passed a motion at their recent conference supporting mandatory selection. This is another one that's been a battle for decades inside the Labour Party and for the right for members to get to have a primary before a general election to decide who uh, their local uh, MP candidate will be. This is obviously very strongly opposed by the sitting MPs and the more right-wing factions of the party. Um, But now the United Trade Union is, is mandated to support it. This is a big step. Uh, they've also um, been supporting these rallies. So Corbyn is now going around Britain uh, holding big rallies in support of his leadership of the party, thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of people showing up. Uh, and the unions have been important in supporting those. Um, for instance, the Fire Brigade Union, which is just reaffiliated to the Labour Party to support uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Most of the, uh, the rallies that Corbyn has been speaking at, he's been speaking on top of a fire engine. Um, so this is a real uh, evidence of the unions uh, doing their best to try to engage with the kind of democratic grassroots enthusiasm for Jeremy Corbyn. The other side, of course, and you always have to, uh, to, to say this, is that there will have to be adaptations and we will see you know, as, the, as, the, uh, as the campaign goes on how much of the moves towards democracy the trade unions will and can support uh, given their own structures and given their own limitations. Um, but the initial indications are very good that the trade unions are not only going to be behind the members back in Corbyn, but are going to take on the task of uh, fighting party democracy. That was Ronan Burtonshaw, and we will put links to his stories on the labor situation up at the Dissent website. Massachusetts passed landmark legislation for equal pay. It's not the first law of its kind, but it is moving toward a meaningful level of reform that actually yields material results for women's lives, unlike previous laws. One of the major loopholes in the existing regulatory framework around gender discrimination has always been that the standard of proof was too stringent to apply to many of the typical forms of workplace gender inequality. By overlooking the gendered nature of job segregation and thereby salaries, it made it near impossible for many to compare similar jobs between men and women in a workplace or sector, and that then excluded women from many of the equal pay protections they were entitled to. Um, Basically, if men aren't working in the same position, it's pretty hard to compare like with like. Um, Ironically, the reason that this gender segregation exists is because of inequality itself. 
So the new Massachusetts law would actually build on existing federal laws and other new state-level reforms in New York and Maryland and other places by expanding the scope of the law and broadening the criteria so that comparable positions could be directly compared by salary. And those ratios could be used as a frame of reference to detect discrimination when it's happening at a more systemic structural level. It would also make it easier to detect violations by making salaries transparent, which private employers were previously able to bar at a workplace virtually unilaterally. Surveys show that despite the fact that it's not technically illegal in most cases, about half of employees are restricted by management from discussing their salaries with coworkers. And obviously, when you can't talk about how much you're making with the person who's working next to you, you can't really figure out if you're being discriminated against when it comes to how much shows up on your actual paycheck. This would also give workers additional legal scope to challenge instances of unequal pay going forward by allowing the claims to expand back many years. It would also make it easier for the Massachusetts Attorney General or groups of workers to file discrimination claims. And employers could also be barred from forcing prospective employees to disclose their previous salary history so that past discrimination in terms of pay couldn't be used against the worker in their new job going forward. So far, Congress has been gridlocked over comprehensive policy reforms to address uh, gender inequality in salaries, but earlier this year, Obama did issue new executive actions that attempt to address fair pay issues, principally by expanding data collection under the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission so that larger companies would have to report to the government about pay gaps in their firms by gender, race, or ethnicity. So while transparency won't do the trick in terms of eliminating the pay gap, it would at least shed some light on it so that these can be addressed on a more systemic level. Retail stores are notoriously hard to organize, as we've discussed on the podcast several times before. The workforce turns over fast, the schedules are unpredictable, and the pay is often quite low. But the workers at fast fashion chain Zara in Manhattan are bucking the trend and unionizing. The news came this week that more than 1,000 Zara employees over eight locations in Manhattan had signed union cards for the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union, RWDSU, Local 1102. And Zara's parent company, Inditex, decided not to oppose the union drive and agreed to recognize the union without a formal election. The win followed on the heels of RWDSU's successful organizing of over 1,000 workers at H&M a few years ago. The union, in its statement on this victory, cheered the European model of these companies into Texas Spanish and their willingness to be neutral in the face of organizing. It also mentioned the possibility of a global framework agreement with the company around neutrality. Of course, most fast and other fashion is still manufactured in less than ethical conditions around the globe, but it is nice to see some positive direction in the customer service workforce in the U.S., and hopefully we will see more along the lines of the uh, solidarity efforts that we've seen in recent years among workers in the U.S. and workers abroad who are facing really kind of horrifying conditions, which we've also covered in great depth on this podcast. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership is back in the headlines. By now, you might have heard that both of the leading presidential candidates 
have openly opposed the TPP in its current form, at least that's what they say in the campaign trail, but that might all turn out to be smoke and mirrors if the Obama administration gets its way, because in the meantime, Obama has been quietly pushing the deal in public statements and has actually been loudly touting the deal abroad, especially in a recent landmark visit to Singapore, when he urged trade ministers to uh, shepherd the TPP um, through their legislatures. And Congress, meanwhile, though it has expressed reluctance to actually act on the TPP in the lame duck session, has left open the possibility that this or some other neoliberal trade deal could be passed in the very near future. And overall, the picture we get from the Democrats is more doublespeak coming out of the convention. The official DNC platform, supposedly the most progressive in the party's history, did not actually officially take a decisive position on the TPP, despite the widespread opposition to it. Rather, it acknowledged the division within the party on the issue. That sets the stage for continued feuding both within the party and between the Democrats and Republicans on free trade. Trump has loudly criticized it, though he remains committed generally to neoliberal policies that are associated with the hemorrhaging of manufacturing jobs, the uh, increased economic instability facing workers in this country, and many labor rights, human rights, environmental rights, and other violations around the world. And uh, of course, this is exceedingly unpopular in core democratic constituencies and working class communities, many of which supported Bernie Sanders precisely for his strong opposition to the TPP and other neoliberal trade deals. Now, this would cover about a dozen Pacific Rim countries if enacted, and it threatens to open some 40% of the world's economy to broad pro-corporate trade policies that would undermine many national and local safeguards and regulations on working standards, on environmental protection, on access to medicines, etc. So the White House, of course, continues to uh, say that anyone who criticizes this deal is embracing so-called protectionism, and, of course, Obama said in Singapore, we can't just walk away from trade. No, of course, we can't walk away from trade, but we can walk toward a more equitable system of global commerce. For a preview of what might happen under a trade deal covering such a huge swath of Asia and the Americas, I recently reported for the nation on the Columbia Free Trade Deal, a deal that Obama notably opposed when he was running for his first term in the presidency. A recent complaint filed by the AFL-CIO with the Labor Department, which actually has some oversight authority over the deal, though not nearly as much as it should, described numerous labor rights violations against Columbia trade unionists, including hundreds of threats against labor activists and scores of deaths among labor activists since the passage of the deal. This is particularly disconcerting because the trade deal included a labor action plan designed to help revamp oversight and improve safeguards for workers' rights. Yeah, that didn't happen. So uh, the AFL-CIO notes that Columbia has both lagged in implementing these reforms and continued uh, with the same impunity to allow labor leaders to be brutalized by many forces within the country, including that of the government itself. So despite pressure from U.S. and Colombian unions, according to the complaint, quote, workers face violence, reprisals, and impunity when trying to exercise their right. So expect more of that under the next administration. Whoever wins, 
whether under the TPP or the next corporate trade pact they will slip through Congress, a Congress all too willing to hand more power to multinationals and remove more power from communities. And now we're speaking to Nathalie Gay. She is one of the coordinators involved with the World Social Forum in Montreal. And she is also advisor to the executive committee of the Confederation des Syndicats Nationales in Quebec, responsible for international affairs. She's going to talk to us about what's coming up at the World Social Forum and how labor will fit into that. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the World Social Forum, can you give us a little background? Yes, of course. Uh, the first World Social Forum was organized in 2001 in uh, Porto Alegre, Brazil. At first, it was intended as an alternative to the World Economic Forum that has been organized since uh, decades in uh, Switzerland and was uh, uniting uh, the, let's say, the big uh, transnationals, uh, uh, presidents, uh, ministers of uh, commerce and all, uh, of trade and all this. So uh, the idea was to organize something for the social movements, the activists, to build another, global, another globalization, another world possible. So not to be against the globalization, but to try to uh, shape uh, the world uh, in a different way. So uh, it was organized at the same time as the World Economic Forum in Davos, and there were uh, actually some uh, dialogues in the first uh, editions uh, between the World Economic Forum and the World Social Forum for the little story, some debates mm -hmm. on uh, issues, uh, on various issues. So, and since then, it's been organized uh, every uh, every year or every second year since uh, 2000, uh, 2007. And for the first mm -hmm. time, the World Social Forum will be held in a country uh, of the global north, let's say, yeah. uh, in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And tell us some more about why it's significant that it's in a global north country and that it's in Quebec particularly. There's a lot of uh, arguments for and against, and, and uh, <laughs> one of the, of the difficulties is the accessibility, of course. But uh, finally, the idea was accepted because uh, people thought it was very important to try to change the dynamic in the countries uh, where uh, the elites are rooted in the richer country to uh, be able uh, to uh, change uh, the way uh, uh, the world is working. Like, there's been a lot of impacts, of course, uh, uh, in the South and especially in Brazil and in Latin America in the, the decades of the 2000s. It's not just because of the forum, of course, but the forum organized there did help a lot to, uh, to uh, bring the movements together and to, uh, to build the strong movements uh, in favor of uh, those uh, new uh, progressive uh, political parties. Uh, that now are a little wiped away, uh, unfortunately, by the right wing in, the, in Latin America. So the idea is to try to bring this, uh, this uh, dynamic in, in, the, in the countries, of course, that are uh, leading the way the globalization is working. Of course, Quebec is not the United States and it's not right. uh, uh, Germany and all that. But in Quebec, there's an history of organizing social forums. 
that is quite significant for the size of the population. There's always been an over-representation of people from Quebec in the World Social Forums. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of important that the, the, the culture of organizing be present uh, to be able to, uh, to to move forward, and there was a there was a, a desire from uh, various uh, uh, activists and and groups to hold this forum uh, here in Montreal. And and the proposal came uh, came uh, originally from an activist uh, uh, of India who unfortunately uh, now passed away. And he thought it would be important to move the forum from uh, the south to uh, to the global north to do just that, to bring it to new uh, circles and to uh, try to uh, make an impact on the population, uh, of course, of the, the northern country. Can you tell us some of the labor-focused conversations that are going to be happening this year at the Social Forum? Yes, of course, there, there are lots of activities right now. Uh, I have uh, the program of what we call the Labor Zone. It's really like almost 20 pages of uh, 10 activities per, uh, per pages. So there's really definitely a lot, lot, lot of activities. I think it's going to be the highest amount of labor activities in a World Social Forum ever. Uh, there are lots of activities on the fight for 15, of course. Uh, there are some activities on uh, precarious work. Uh, there are a lot on trade, uh, free trade agreements, migration. There's a lot of activities on the education zone, but a lot of them are organized by labor uh, organizations as well. A lot on the public yeah. services. Uh, and some also on the energy with the the, TUA, the, the trade union for energy democracy. So th there's a lot of mm -hmm. subject covered by uh, by uh, the unions, and uh, there are lots of activities that are uh, common to many unions. For instance, the one on free trade that we mm -hmm. organize will have like 12 speakers from everywhere around the world, and it's just labor activists. But the idea is to have a discussion between the labor activists and and after that bring it to the convergence assembly where there will be also other social movements so we can build some convergence also between the movements and not only stay and have some discussions between the labor movement uh, still in some yeah. cases these discussions are really important because there are no other places where we can uh, discuss whatever we want and take the time really to uh, go in depth in some uh, issues, uh, some important issues or some uh, solidarity uh, campaigns. Let's say, for instance, we have one activity on Palestine, but on the working conditions, of course, and the struggle of the working class in Palestine. And how can unions be in solidarity with them? Also, one on uh, Occidental Sahara, which is Western Sahara, sorry, which is like a, a conflict that is really not known a lot. And and but there are but there's a union there that is really struggling and and could use some more solidarity from the U global union movement. So, so this is the kind of activities that we'll see uh, there in the labor zone next week. So this is the first World Social Forum since the signing of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, can you talk about that agreement in terms of how the labor movement is moving forward on climate change and uh, climate justice issues, especially with respect to the intersection between labor rights and sustainable development? 
I mean, uh, I wasn't in Paris and all that, but it's an important subject. It's been it's been important for years. I mean, like uh, it's true that now after Paris, uh, there was a big union presence in Paris. But uh, let's say that uh, here in Quebec, because I cannot talk about many other things, but uh, there's been some significant union involvement in various uh, coalitions, initiatives, groups uh, to really try to uh, bring uh, the bring uh, the initiatives of the workers a little farther than uh, what they they used to be in the past. And of course, uh, of course, like we are, like you, I think in the U.S., we are facing some projects of uh, exploiting, of, like fracking, for instance. Uh, fracking uh, natural gas or oil in certain regions and of course the way now that these debates are framed is not the same as it was like 10 years ago and I think uh, the union movement the, the labor movement is now able to do some significant step forward even I can give you a concrete example another union in, uh, in Canada Unifor uh, they they have uh, they organize the workers in uh, Fort McMurray uh, where uh, you have the big exploitation of tar sands. And uh, the president, the local president of, uh, of this union was in uh, Paris and, uh, and he said he was, he was willing like, to defend the idea of a just transition and say like, you don't want like, the workers to be laid off tomorrow, but you want them to be able to have a job in 10, 20 years. So I think the whole framing of the just transition uh, in the labor movement has now has now been giving the fruits that it, it it promised like five years ago when we started to talk about that. So uh, so so yes, I think now there's still some uh, some resistance. I think there's still some education to do and and uh, and 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 some innovative projects to try to do at the local level to bring the people uh, on board uh, with uh, regards to uh, this challenge. And for instance, for us is to say that. Maybe uh, as a union, you could know more about uh, the regulation in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emission because you could, uh, you should be aware of what your bus is doing and what is the carbon footprint of your enterprise because in two years, perhaps it won't be uh, in line, it won't be compliant with the regulation and that could have some significant impacts on the jobs and the sustainability of uh, the uh, the the enterprise and, and thus uh, the jobs in a couple of years. So this kind of approach is uh, is getting a lot of attention uh, in, let's say, the industrial sector. So we have more and more demands like to really understand what are the rules and and perhaps it's a way to go around and to uh, to uh, to arrive to uh, the same results. But it's kind of it's kind of working because in some cases it was the union that told the bus, "Hey, you're not respecting the regulation and you're paying a lot of due, of, of fines because you're not respecting it." You could invest those this money to uh, create more job and to uh, I don't know to uh, to modernize the equipment and so on. So. When I think about um, the convergence between climate justice and the labor movement, um, I think of here in the U.S., uh, there is um, a lot of controversy around the Keystone XL pipeline, and that the movement against that uh, extended certainly all the way through North America. Can you talk about how it played out in Canada? Because my understanding is that unions maybe had a different position than they did uh, here in the U.S. Yeah. Yes, there are different... Uh... 
Well, there are different uh, positions here too, you know, because of course, uh, th th this whole idea of pipeline is, uh, is, uh, it's been promoted by the industry, by the ex-conservative government, and by and it's not clear like if uh, if <laughs> the Quebec government is is kind of backing it, but at the same time, you know, it's so not popular. Like in Quebec, for instance, this idea of pipelines are not really popular, uh, and and most the, the the reason why and the, one of the most important reason why is because. It, it won't create any jobs here, you know. It's just a platform of exportation for uh, the the tar sands that are the that create jobs in the West, and here they will just be the the, the the crude would just be exported as is, and and would not like be transformed in Quebec and will not create sustainable jobs and all that. So. So th that helps a lot, like to be against that. But another reason why, for instance, our union said that we're against the various pipelines because there are many pipelines. Keystone is one, but here we have e Energy East and Trans Canada. We have two projects uh, that uh, we faced in the last years, and um, one of the arguments is say these pipelines are needed to uh, double or triple the exploitation of the tar sands. And we cannot do that. If we are to fight the climate change and reduce globally our emissions, like Canada cannot like uh, double and expand like the production of tar sands. It doesn't make any sense. So why building the infrastructure to allow that? And, and, and that I think is the perhaps the strongest argument against that, that because we know that we won't stop like tomorrow to produce these tar sands, but let's not develop infrastructure that will allow us to develop them and uh, and exploit them for 20 years. Let's start to work and invest the money on the just transition. Meanwhile, like uh, of course the, the the oil has to be transported, and there's been a debate because here we had a big accident with the train that entered into uh, Megan City. Megantic village a couple of years ago, lots of people died and it was really a big trauma for the population here. So like trains are not perhaps a better solution, are trucks a better solution, are boats a better solution uh, than than pipelines? That's, that's a little bit hard to tell, but like the idea is to say like, let's try to focus on reducing our emissions and uh, opt out of, uh, of the production of fossil fuels and then invest in renewable energy. So, and a lot of, uh, of people, of course, are concerned uh, that uh, there'll be some spills, uh, spills of, uh, uh, I don't know if it's the correct term, of uh, the pipelines. Uh, the indigenous communities are massively against the pipelines. Uh, lots of, uh, of, of of the people who are concerned directly that the pipeline will, will go through their community or their land are really concerned. So, like I would say here in Quebec, there's no uh, social acceptability uh, around uh, these issues, but still the industry is really motivated to to, to move forward. But again, I'm not following this issue every day. But there are some, of course, some unions who are more favorable, um, who are more willing to go for it. But I would say that uh, I think the majority uh, 
uh, of course, is is pretty much against. But it's not the same thing. Like if you represent uh, uh, teachers or people in the hospitals and all that, it's not the same thing as representing uh, people in the exploitation of the tarsen. So I think you have to, of course, understand that. But more and more, this this tool of the just transition can help the union at the local level to say, like, yeah, we, we have to have another plan than this one. The theme of migration is going to be a big issue at the uh, at the World Social Forum. Can you talk about what labor's uh, what labor discussions there might be um, around mass migration and the issue of things like refugee policy, um, economic and trade policy with respect to human movement, and um, you know how labor rights uh, are affected by that. Yes, uh, that's a that's a big theme, and I think it's it's really different from uh, one union to the other, depending on, on the country uh, you live in. Uh, of course, uh, there are um, there there will be, for instance, we have a specific uh, workshop on this. There will be people from uh, Tunisia that will talk about uh, their need to to like. The difficulty to find job, like in Tunisia, that leads a lot of people, that brings a lot of people in movement. The same thing would apply with the people in uh, in Asia who go work in the Middle East, for instance, as migrant workers, because there are not enough jobs in Asia, or they are better paid in in, in other countries, but they end up uh, being. Uh, almost enslaved in certain cases, like uh, the case of Qatar was really put forward by the International Trade Union Confederation for these reasons, because uh, the conditions were so bad, like, for example, when they build uh, all the infrastructure for uh, the um, the Mundial, the, the, the World uh, Soccer, uh, the World Football uh, Championship. Uh, so uh, there are really different issues in, in Europe, like uh, unions are so concerned uh, that uh, the, uh, the, the the policy of uh, the U- European Union and lots of states uh, regarding uh, the refugee uh, uh, crisis was was this one. They were really ashamed, like when we had the discussions that um, I think in fall uh, we had a meeting of the uh, International Trade Union Confederation. There were so many interventions from uh, the unions in Europe and how ashamed they were of this closing of the borders and and, and this uh, and this uh, this growing uh, this growing sense of um, of racism, this growing movement of racism in some countries uh, uh, towards uh, towards migrants. And so it's it's very big question, and uh, and and I think there are some unions. Like I was really inspired when I was in uh, in uh, English Canada and in the U.S. Uh, in the way that the unions there are able to uh, to um, to frame uh, the exploitation of migrant worker or racialized uh, workers uh, in in the, in the, in the union discourse, let's say in the union speech, let's say for instance in the in the food sector, you find out that uh, the people that have the worst conditions are the migrant workers or the racialized workers. And these type of work were previously done by slaves. And then it's still the same kind of exploitation, but let's say uh, with a little bit more protection. 
so I think that's an an analysis that we really have to uh, to uh, integrate uh, to uh, because if we can protect the rights of the migrant workers and 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 uh, and not give them uh, the same uh, condition, we just keep on uh, reproducing. Uh, uh, the way the inequalities are uh, are, are shaping uh, the world in the, in the different nations and won't like we're just taking advantage like uh, the the rich countries are just taking advantage of these uh, of these uh, of these workers and that's like just keep on uh, the the uh, the inequalities between the different uh, nations the way uh, the way they are and not helping to improve the conditions in the different countries uh, because the ideal, like, like let's say, for instance, the uh, the TUCA, the Trade Union Confederation of the Americas, have, have worked a lot on these migration issues and promote the right not to to migrate. So this means, like, the the what goes with that is the right to work, but not the right to work as you have in the states, but the 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 human right uh, to access work, like like it's been defined in the Declaration on Economical, Social and Cultural Rights of the, the UN. So, yeah, I think an approach, a, a big, a, a global approach based on human rights uh, is the way to move forward in this, uh, in this direction. And I think if you think about the right not to migrate, that means a lot of things uh, a lot, a lot of other rights have to be uh, uh, protected in uh, in the different countries in order for this uh, to happen. Historically, the World Social Forum has always uh, struggled and uh, really uh, you know, been challenged in terms of maintaining a broad reach and also reflecting global solidarity and also being conscious of global inequalities across mm-hmm. all of the different countries and regions that are participating. In what ways do you think maybe this World Social Forum might build upon the past experiences to make sure that those political fissures and some of the uh, obviously economic, social, racial divides across the globe are taken into account, but also perhaps, you know, uh, somehow worked through during this process? Yeah, well, that I think like the World Social Forum is providing this space where we can uh, deepen like our understanding of uh, the the challenges and the fights that we are uh, facing and delivering. I, I mean, it's it's really an opportunity to to let's say I'm fighting inequalities. Uh, this is a unique opportunity to know how how inequalities are lived elsewhere, and not only think that they suddenly appeared after the financial crisis, because they are there since a lot of time for many people around the world. And inequalities in Bangladesh is not the same thing as inequalities here. And here we also have like a, a, the situation of the First Nation and Aboriginal community that are not known so much, and that so. I think it's a really an important space where we can really understand what we are talking about, expand our understanding, and thus be able to imagine the best campaigns and and strategies to try to tackle uh, the the like the phenomenon we are uh, uh, we are trying to uh, to uh, to fight against or to improve a situation. So switching gears a little bit, um, there have been a lot of protests, strikes, actions in Quebec over the last few years. A lot of our listeners probably remember the massive student strikes in 2012 
and then um, the public sector strikes in 2015. Can you talk a little bit about how all of those those very Quebec-specific issues um, laid the groundwork for what's going to happen this this week at the social forum? Well, uh, of course, uh, I think uh, I think the student strike in 2012 was a major moment for us, a moment we've been waiting for for a long time, and uh, because uh, a whole generation suddenly got involved and and were really vocal and mobilized, and and not just one generation. Like I think it it it, it brought a lot of people in the street and did a lot uh, in terms of political education. And I think what it did uh, will have uh, long-term results that are not necessarily so easy to grasp. Even if the immediate mm-hmm. result was the resigning of uh, the government, which is not a small thing, unfortunately, though, uh, we we came to realize, and and that wasn't new, but that like uh, you could always like defeat a government, but if you don't have a political alternative, then after this same government can came, can come back, and that's exactly what happened with the Liberal Party that came back 18 months after. So and then after that, that same government. Uh, was even more, well, had a different strategy, of course, but was really, really aggressive in terms of austerity measures. And it it got like the union movement really mobilized and the popular movement as well. Um, uh, the grassroots organization really mobilized against it. And there was lots of activities organized. Like we talk a lot about the, the mobilization, the public sectors, of course, these were like kind of historic it, it mobilized like uh, hundreds of thousands of workers, but there was also a lot of mobilization, a popular mobilization against the austerity. Um, now it's the vacation, it's the summer, so it's not really active, but still in the spring, you still had some parents that were creating human chains around schools to draw the attention on the uh, underinvestments uh, under uh, in the school system that, that makes that some schools are not even healthy to be in, you know, and that lots of, uh, lots, lots, lots of services are lost. So, so I think um, what's special a little bit about Quebec is that uh, we always work in coalitions, in groups, like everybody knows almost everyone. So, and it's always, uh, like you, you have some principal organization, but you have lots of, lots of, lots of organization. And if something come up, like a fight to make and all that, normally the groups come together pretty quickly, and they and they try to organize so that there'll be some common actions, there'll be a calendar of activities. And sometimes, you know, you have coalitions and groups that are not really on the same page in terms of. Uh, of the, the 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 radicality of their analysis or what kind of actions they want to to make, but still they will be in contact together and try to be complementary and 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 to reinforce like each other. So I think that's something really uh, particular in Quebec. At least if I, if I if I look at what's happening in the rest of of North America and the unions are really. Uh, uh, really close to other social movements, and I think that's what's 
that what makes our mobilization uh, so not only big in terms of numbers, but also sustained in the duration, because it's not only one day. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say you have May 1st in 2015, that was huge. Like uh, in my day, in, in my day of mobilization, I did eight occupation in Montreal, and that was a yeah. coalition of different type of organization, and that was like a new, uh, new type of collective actions that were uh, being pushed by the union. So, and I think that's the legacy a little bit of also 2012, where uh, well, we, we we saw not only that the people were mobilized, but they were like the the students were so creative in terms of collective action. It was so inspiring. It was over. It was like a groove, you know, like people would wanted to be there because it was so interesting and. And, and, and almost artistical. There were so many peoples involved. So, so I think this um, this also had an impact on how we want to do some collective actions now. And of course, all this network, all these people now, everybody here is involved in the World Social Forum at different level, being in term, mostly in terms of the programmation and the mobilization of their networks, not really in logistical terms. Even if we do help for, let's say, the march, the logistic, and things like that. And uh, in our last couple seconds, do you want to say a few words about the new administration and uh, what you think of Trudeau, especially after all those years of struggle under Harper? Yes, I think I think it's important to do so. Of course, for everyone, I think it's a relief that Harper is now gone and that we have another type of administration that is clearly more committed on human rights, uh, well, certain human rights, let's say. Uh, they have been doing a lot uh, for uh, indigenous and uh, uh, in First Nation demands. Uh, now they, they just announced uh, the creation of a commission uh, of inquiry on the death and the disparition, uh, and, and the disparition of uh, thousands of uh, indigenous women. So that was an historical demand and it's like, it set the tone really to a different kind of uh, e uh, epoch uh, era uh, in terms of relation with the First Nations. Uh, but there are many other subjects. I mean, they've been uh, canceling uh, the anti-union laws that uh, Harper's implemented. They've been doing a lot of things. Unfortunately, there are still some big things that need to be done. For instance, for this forum, we have lots of people that couldn't have their visa. So there'll be uh, probably hundreds of people from the South, and we're talking more about people of countries in Africa, Middle East, of course, that are the most impacted by this uh, uh, really uh, fortress Canada policy uh, that requires so many uh, so many things to obtain a visa. So this is still difficult. We still have some problems with uh, the policy regarding Palestine and Israel. There are lots of things to be done, but of course it's a relief and 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 it's bringing Canada back a little bit uh, at what it was before. And overall, when you look at the different countries, like you have to admit that's that's probably the one of the most uh, progressive uh, government on earth, which is kind of uh, spectacular because they are not left wing. You know, it's I think like what the, the buzz is around is that they are they are more accessible, they are more open, they want to uh, they want to be more transparent, and that that's really something that is so appealing after what we've been living under the Arab government that it brings so much fresh air. And um, and does create a buzz. I mean, it's but well, of course, we'll see. I think uh, 
for us uh, the the important decisions that will be taken in terms of ratifying or not the TPP, uh, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of uh, the investment in the health sector, these important things uh, really for us will be where we see where they really stand on some of the issues. But it's it's really important. One of the most important thing that has to be said about that is that they were able in uh, political in uh, in the in the race to the power to say we will create a deficit, and that's really countercultural. Like we've been uh, really really told for decades that deficits are terrible, that you, we must never do that again, that we have to pay the debt and all that. And they were able to go against that in a political campaign and say, we will create some deficits. And they actually are creating some deficits. So, so this is really important. And that, and that brings hope because it says that if even if even if it's for political reason or, or all that, we, you can always bring the people somewhere else. Even if they were told since decades that it's not right to do that and all that, they say, well, that makes sense. Let's go for it. So I think that can bring also a lot of hope. People are inspired by him. So this also brings some hope because people can take some courageous <laughs> or have new ideas. Uh, because they are inspired this this time by a political leader, but that, I mean, people wanted some change, and it's a better direction than the way the the reverse way, the inverse way. Let's see. That was Natalie Gay, and you can catch her, Michelle, and many other wonderful people at the World Social Forum in Montreal next week, August 9th through fourteenth. You're listening to Belabored a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is, of course, everyone's favorite time. It is time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. The piece that made me go ARG this week was at Descent, written by friend of the show E. Tammy Kim. Titled Unionizing the Digital Newsroom, the piece in part tells Tammy's own story of participating in the union drive at Al Jazeera America, and the news shortly afterward that the company was folding anyway, and in part her piece analyzes the trend of unionization in digital media. Tammy was one of 50 members of the digital print division at Al Jazeera, which I freelanced for on occasion, who organized with the News Guild, the updated name for the Newspaper Guild, reflecting its work in a 21st century media environment. Unfortunately, one peril of the 21st century media environment is highly hyped startups that disappear just as quickly once multi-millionaire backers get bored of trying to make money in a field that doesn't make much of it. Al Jazeera America was one such casualty, and its highly lauded launch, Tammy Notes, had presaged a brief period of expansion for the news industry in New York before the waves of layoffs began again. The shuttering of AJAM, as we called it, turned the union's negotiations from a first contract to last paychecks, severance, and health insurance extensions. Several other unions of the wave of organizing among digital media, including The Guardian U.S., Salon, Gawker, Think Progress, and The Huffington Post, have since seen layoffs. Tammy writes, quote, Journalists love to cover other journalists, and media reporters vastly outnumber those on the labor beat. The articles they wrote about Gawker, Salon, and the rest had a heavy refrain that these shops were historic, their staffs laboring pioneers of the digital realm and its millennial workforce, a.k.a. Generation 1099. Would Facebook or Google be next? 
course, other digital news outlets had organized before this wave, beginning with Truthout in 2009. More importantly, though, Tammy digs into the questions of what this wave has actually accomplished and how it still holds itself apart from a once-proud tradition of solidarity and militant action in the newsroom. She writes, quote, The coverage and self-presentation of digital workers obscured a longer history of media organizing, too. Today's newsroom inhabitants, conceived as content creators, tweeters, posters, and impresarios of their own personal brand, are described in Silicon Valley dialect. We are aggregating entrepreneurs at odds with one another and alienated from our predecessors in print. To unionize is to lay claim to a powerful, if deeply flawed, lineage. Yet we've detached ourselves from an instructive century of mobilization. End quote. Workers at many of the newly organized shops, she notes, accepted without question the idea that their bosses should be able to fire them. Just cause termination clauses were non-existent. We are, on some level, at ease with precarity, she notes. Even though digital media workers are unionizing, they still don't seem interested in fighting for a long-term career at one outlet. Or maybe they're just aware that with the rapid turnover, not just in jobs, but in the very existence of digital publications, a union alone won't be able to keep them afloat. So my pick for this episode is by Maria Konnikova in The New Yorker, and it's called What Makes People Feel Upbeat at Work, and it's about precisely what makes people feel not upbeat at work. In fact, it makes them feel downright terrible often. So uh, she begins with a recent National Labor Relations Board ruling against T-Mobile for trying to monitor and control workers' happiness. The telecommunications giant actually included a provision in its employee handbook requiring workers to, quote, maintain a positive work environment in a manner that is conducive to effective working relationships. So you might have trouble discerning what that is, and it seems like that's kind of the problem. Now, it's a noble goal because everybody wants to work in a workplace full of happy people, but this can actually backfire. In other words, you can't force happiness. So what's behind this idea that your boss can order you to be happy at all? As one researcher, Alicia Grandy, puts it in the piece, quote, when anything feels forced or externally controlled, it doesn't tend to be as beneficial as when it's coming from the self. The irony is when you're trying to get people to do something positive, you can't do it. Once it's required, it's fake and forced. It feels like Big Brother. Big Brother is an apt metaphor for the multinational giants that lord over the employees' every move at work these days, micromanaging the workplace through complicated software algorithms, tracking their behavior using big data, and seeking to monetize slash penalize every act performed at work in an effort to enhance productivity. This obsession over being productive all the time leads to pressure to perform, quote, emotional labor. Um, that's something we've discussed many times here and belabored in terms of how it affects gender and workplace culture. The issue with emotional labor or seeking to extract value from emotional control in a workplace setting is that the labor is often not remunerated appropriately, especially if you're a woman working in, say, a restaurant who's expected to smile and wear tight clothes all the time to please your male customers. But the fundamental principle may be wrong as well. You cannot buy happiness. Research on behavior at work under employee mandates to behave well suggests, as Konnikova writes, such employer-limiting regulations may inhibit thinking and sap initiative and drive. 
When we are constantly monitoring our behavior, we tend to be on guard and act defensively. We tend to prevent rather than to promote. And Grandy observes, if we're expecting people to be super happy and positive to people on the job as part of your job, if you can't turn around and be real with coworkers, you're amplifying emotional labor and you have a real problem on your hands. Micromanaging behavior exhibits the law of diminishing returns, in other words. Studies have shown that Quote, the highest performers of all were those in moderately regulated environments who also felt a high degree of autonomy. Moderation means limiting the boss's reach, which is what the NLRB ruled in T-Mobile's case, where the rules generally had their intended effect, Conicover writes, was in the moderate range, when there were some explicit guidelines but flexibility in how they were to be implemented. Workers benefit from guidance only to an extent, and beyond that, they need the power and responsibility to act on their own. That means being happy when they want to be and maybe being pissed when it makes sense. For all the talk about flexibility in the workplace, this is one area in which corporate America has proven patently inflexible. Konnikova concludes that we are seeing this play out in non-work settings as well, as with the controversy around what many call the policing of tone and self-censorship around political discourses on college campuses and in the media. One look at the Twitterverse shows how easily anxiety induced by controlling one's expression can easily explode and display the exact opposite of control. In other words, don't sweat it. It doesn't pay off at work, and it probably doesn't pay off for your boss in the long run either. The T-Mobile case against the NLRB might have been a rare instance in which an employee was actually able to seek legal recourse against an employer who had tried to enforce happiness at work. The rest of us, of course, have to grin and bear it at work, and if you stand up to your boss, well, that could be an emotional labor all on its own. So good luck with that. And that'll do it for this episode of Belabored. You can reach us, as always, on Twitter at hashtag Belabored, or you can reach us by email at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And we'll see you in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.